Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. And you know what? I should not feel this way about this book before I even start fucking reading it. I really shouldn't. It might be a brand new day and something good might happen, but God dog it, that last book. If you couldn't tell by the music, we're back to the cartel. This is uh, the cartel book three. Because you see, the entirety of book two was... It was all a dream. All the rape. All the murders. All the hangings. They were all a dream. A dream sequence. Which means that, to go down the list, Mecca's still alive. Matia's still alive. Mia Moore's still alive. Breeze is still alive. Fabian is still alive. And she comes to to Fabian whooping her ass. Which means everything that happened before was all for naught. That whole backstory. Everything they told us. Murder is probably still in jail. We don't know. But what I do know is that if any of the shit from that second book carries over to this book. I'm going to be fucking furious. Gotta be so mad. How in the fuck does she have a dream sequence inside of a dream sequence where she recapped her life? How does that happen? What kind of Inception shit is this? I'm gonna be so mad. I can't even. I can't even describe it. Mm. The Cartel Three Commencement. That's what they're calling this book. Commencement. <sighs> By Ashley and Jaquavis. Prologue. We are gathered here today to celebrate the lives of three of God's children. The preacher stood before the many people who attended the funeral of street royalty. It was a sad day in Miami. And on this day... The streets were like a ghost town. It seemed as if the entire underworld had stopped to commemorate those they had lost. Everyone within the city limits felt this grief. I fully fucking doubt that. 
anyone who's not involved in a drug game, who isn't involved in getting hit and drive-bys and all that kind of shit, is probably really fucking happy. I don't think anybody was like, yeah, they're dead, and they they brought drugs into the community, but dude, they're, they're, they're rims. Did you hear the music they were playing? They had the newest stuff from, like, New York. They're closed. Fuck, I'm already back in. The lives of three street legends have been destroyed, and grief overflowed in the ceremony as three silver-plated coffins sat side-by-side with an array of flower arrangements around them. It was a bright, sunny day. And it seemed as if God shunned his light down from the heavens to make that hard day seem a tad bit better for the morning attendees. It was a triple funeral to bury the last of the Diamond family. Breeze, Carter, and Mecca. The fuck? Okay, sorry. The cartel was no more. And it was the last chapter to what was named one of the biggest legacies in Miami's underworld history. Their story was legendary, ruthless, and most of all, classic. Many people were in attendance, but the most important guests were not there to pay their final respects. They were there to confirm that the last of the cartel was deceased and about to be buried into the ground. Robin and Aries were in attendance because Robin didn't die either. Dream sequence, remember. Robin and Aries were in attendance draped in all black dresses with big shades on to keep a low profile. Murder also sat beside them. What the fuck? The demise of the cartel was bittersweet for him and he gritted his teeth tightly as he thought about Mecca and the missed opportunity to personally kill him on Mia Moore's behalf. Nevertheless, Mecca was dead and that would have been enough for him. What? What? Emilio Estes, Lena, and Monroe Jr. were also in attendance, mourning the loss. They were the only people left alive who could sit on the front pew reserved for family. Although far removed from the diamond legacy, they were the last of a dying bloodline. There was an eerie feeling in the air, and everyone there could sense it. As the preacher held the Holy Bible tightly in his hand and read from the book of Psalms, a stretched limo with tinted windows rolled up slowly about 50 yards away from the service. Many people didn't notice it, but the trained eyes were glued to the approaching vehicle. Emilio Estes looked back and saw the limo pull up, and he watched as it came to a slow stop. Estes knew exactly who it was. It was the crew responsible for the very funeral he was at. Emilio, being in his mid-sixties and not willing to step back into the streets, conceded defeat and pulled his white handkerchief from the top pocket of his suit. To many, it looked as if Emilio was just removing a hanky, but veterans of the street game knew what that small gesture meant. Emilio wanted the bloodshed to stop and signaled that he would not retaliate. The war was finally over and the cartel was no more. Literally, he was waving a white flag. It was officially the cartel's last chapter. Niggas are going to have to explain to me what the fuck murder is doing there. If that was all a dream sequence, what the fuck are Robin and Aries doing there? Shouldn't they still be back in L.A.? If that was all a dream sequence, like you literally said? 
Why the fuck are they there? Shouldn't they? You know what? You know what? You know what? Chapter one. Bad girls die slow. Fabian. The blood in Mia Moore's eyes blocked out the image of Fabian standing over her, and her shallow, desperate breaths drowned out all sounds in the room. Death loomed over her. She knew it was near. The chill in her lovely bones was every indication that her life was slipping away. A breathless Fabian stood over her. Her tormentor, her grim reaper, leered at her menacingly. The smug grin on his face sickened her as her heart filled with hate for him. It pleased him to watch her die. It was vindication for the hell that she had put him through once. And she knew that the lifestyle that she had led ultimately determined the cruel way in which she was about to die. It was a law of nature. She had taken more lives than she could count. Had destroyed too many families to remember. And her heart had turned cold so long ago that she didn't even care. Now, it was her turn. This was her fate. Her karma. And because she had pushed away everyone who had ever cared for her, no one would even know that she had disappeared from the face of the earth. Most people in her position would repent. They would beg for their lives or feel regret for all of the events that had led up to this torturous moment. But Mia Moore was not most people. Her hard shell had not cracked, and even the most gruesome pressure, she still had to maintain some form of control. Fabian wanted to see her break down. He had done everything that was physically possible to get her to give in. Her face was badly disfigured. Her fingernails pulled from her nail beds, and her bones crushed and broken. But still, not one tear had fallen. She had passed out many times, but that was a physical response to the pain. Crying was controlled by her mental state, and that was one resolve that was too strong for anyone to conquer. Bitch, you're going to beg me for your life, he seethed as he circled her, sweaty from his ruthless assault on her. He lifted his hand and backhanded her with the butt of his gun, causing her neck to snap violently to the right. Mia Moore bit her tongue to avoid screaming out in agony. She wouldn't give him the satisfaction of seeing her so weak. Blood poured from her mouth, but it only mixed in with the rest of the blood that soaked her battered body. He had been in the basement for a full 24 hours, killing her slowly. But no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't feel the satisfaction of revenge that he sought. There was something about the look in her eyes that said, Fuck you. And even in her most fragile state, her mentality never failed her. Murder was bred deep within her. Fabian was committing the act of murder, but Mia Moore was a killer. She breathed murder. It was all she knew. The only thing she had ever been good at. It was her profession. So, even as she sat in the damp basement, her soul slowly abandoning her, her dainty wrist tightly bound to a wooden chair, her eyes still told the story of the greatest bitch who had ever done it. She was merciless, and even death couldn't wipe her off the map. There was no escaping this. Her time had come, and Mia Moore had no regrets. She was on her way to hell, but it was worth the legacy she was leaving behind. Yes, her lifestyle led her to nothing but loneliness and misery. 
She had loved two men in her lifetime, but it never had room in her world for either of them. They would have never understood how she lived or the things she had been through. And because of this, she had never fully given her heart to another, even though she said she did in the last book. But it was all a dream, you know. She had given up so much in order to reign terror in the streets. And to her, it was worth it. If she had chosen to play wifey to men like Murder or Carter, people would have forgotten an ordinary young woman named Mia Moore. She would have been lost in her shadows. So she had chosen something much greater. She had chosen a life of murder for hire. And now, even after her death, her name would resound loudly in the streets. Her small feet would leave huge shoes to fill in the game. Legend of her notorious wrecking crew, the Murder Mamas, will ring true for years to come. She had made sure that no one would ever forget. Every new hustler coming up in the game would eventually hear the story of Mia Moore, and she will forever be notorious now. The sound of the basement door opening and the heavy thud of boots descending the staircase announced a new presence in the room, causing Mia Moore to lift her head weakly. Anxiety made her heart gallop as she watched a cool, calm, and freshly dressed Mecca saunter down the stairs. A machete hung from his hand. Damn, nigga. You ain't done killing this bitch yet? This shit make your dick hard? Mecca cracked, knowing that an erection would never be possible for Fabian again, thanks to Mia Moore. I wanted this bitch to hurt like I hurt. Bad girls die slow, Fabian stated. I just want to hear this bitch scream before I kill her. Mecca's eyes opened wide in surprise as he looked around the room at the carnage that Fabian's torture produced. You done use every trick in the book and you still can't make the bitch holler? Bitch ain't human, fam, Fabian replied. Mecca chuckled mockingly as he shook his head. You really are a bitch-ass nigga, he mumbled as he approached Mia Moore. The blade of the machete screeching across the floor as he dragged it. Mia Moore knew the time for games was over. Mecca had not come back for nothing. He was there to end this, and there was no doubt in her mind that he would. He was the only nigga she had ever met whose murder game matched her own. Mecca would not hesitate. He would kill her without second guessing it. She knew this because if the shoe were on the other foot... He would already be a distant memory. The faces of everyone she had ever loved flashed before her eyes. She closed them and welcomed the images. Murder, Anissa, Robin, and Ares. They were all a part of her final fleeting thoughts. But the faces stuck out the most. The last person she thought of was Carter Jones. The love of her life. Wait, what? They literally just said a page before that she never truly had room in her world for either of them and never opened up her heart, fully given her heart to another. But that was the love of her life. <sighs> okay. He was the man who had shown her a love so strong, one that she knew she would have never been able to fully return. As much as she loved him, she did not deserve him, and he did not deserve the tyranny that she had brought into his life the fuck she had played a cat and mouse game with mecca for too long now it was time for the charade to end the scent of mecca's isi miyaki cologne invaded her senses as he bent down near her ear Moore's eyes remained closed as mecca took in the image of her 
Seeing her this way was poetic for him. A beautiful demise for an ugly situation. The two of them could never coexist. Her day of reckoning had come. My man here feels like you owe him something. Now, I have a proposition for you. I think you've learned your lesson. I'm not usually a forgiving man, but if you apologize to Fabian here and you admit that you can't fuck with me, then I won't kill you. I'll let you go. As long as you leave Miami, my city, Mecca whispered in her ear. He wasn't a nice guy and didn't even imitate one well. He knew that he would never let me and more live, but he wanted to hear her apologize. And he wanted to hear her admit that she was beneath him, that he held the power, that only he could determine whether she lived or died. Mia Moore bit into her inner jaw because she had never hated anyone more than she hated Mecca Diamond. And there were so many emotions pulsing through her body that she couldn't stop the hot tears from falling down her face. See? The bitch does cry, Mecca pointed out to Fabian, who stood baffled behind him. Now, tell me I'm the best, bitch. Let me hear you say it. Mia Moore's body shook with rage as Mecca waited impatiently for her response. Blood poured out of her mouth as she hung in the balance between life and death. She was barely strong enough to hold her head up. As she opened her mouth, she whispered, Come closer so you can hear me. Barely audible, she waited until Mecca leaned close to her ear. She didn't want him to miss a single word of what she was about to say. Say it, bitch. Give up your pride to save your life. Mecca proposed as she breathed into his ear. So, did Mecca lean close to her ear or did Mecca lean close to her mouth? Because she's breathing in his ear. Y'all can't start this early with this bullshit. Come on. You'll never be the best, Mecca. Because I'm the best. You can kill me, but it'll never change the fact that I took Everybody you ever loved away from you. You didn't take money. He killed money. You didn't take Breeze. Even though I guess they still don't know where Breeze is because that was a dream sequence. You made a mistake when you killed my sister. You take one from me, I take two from you. And the rest of my people are in the wind. They're untouchable. I did that. I made sure of that. If you were the best, you would have done the same. Every day for the rest of your life, you'll think of me and more, nigga. I promise you, she whispered. She kissed his cheek, instantly turning his skin cold and running shivers down his spine. It felt like the kiss of death, and Mecca stood to his feet with fire in his eyes. There was nothing he hated more than a slick-talking-ass bitch. But Mia Moore was like a pit bull. She never let go. Once she put her beam on somebody, nothing could stop her. Nothing short of death. Mia Moore closed her eyes as she allowed the last tear to fall. Then she inhaled deeply before focusing on Mecca, staring him in the eyes. Although he hated her to his core, he knew that they were more alike than either of them had ever cared to admit. And he silently respected her and hated her all in the same moment. They both knew that she had just taken her last breath. 
Mia Moore glared unflinchingly at him and waited for what she knew was to come. It was over, and in that instant, everything went black. Candles laced the entire basement as a... I'm not doing this. Candles laced the entire basement as the smooth sounds of Bob Marley's redemption song danced through the airwaves. Marley had a way of speaking to a person's soul and conveying his words on point and full of passion. Matisse felt this song more than ever as he closed his eyes and absorbed the powerful lyrics of the legend. Plush velvet carpet, smells of relaxing lavender incense, and flickering candles all set the mood for what was to be Matisse's grand finale. He stared at Breeze, who was lying in the bed dressed in the red lingerie set that he had picked up for her for their special day. He smiled as he looked at Breeze, who was in a daze-like state, trying to raise her head from the pillow. It seemed as though a fog had fallen over her. It was as if she were in a hazy dream as she tried to fight the sedation. Mati looked on and smiled at her. Don't you try and fight the drug, baby girl. Relax me, lady. He instructed softly as he ran his fingers through her long hair. Mati had heavily drugged her, as he did every night just before he made twisted love to her. This is not love. Just call it what it is. It's your book. I know that you're thinking that this is what's in his mind. How did y'all write an entire book where she just dreamed that this little girl got assaulted over and over again? How would that even come up in the figment of her imagination that somewhere off where she's actually at, Matia is assaulting her so much that she commits suicide? In Matia's demented mind, Breeze Diamond was his woman, and he had fallen deeply in love with her over the time that she had been in his clutches. Breeze played the role to the T as she pretended as if she were off point. But unbeknownst to Mati, Breeze was as clear-headed as she had ever been. Uncharacteristically, Mati had taken his eyes off Breeze while giving her the drug. Breeze saw an opportunity and took it by quickly spitting out the pill and pretending as if she had swallowed it. She was just waiting for the right time to make a dash for the stairs that led up to the main floor of Mati's home. Mati was completely naked and ready to lay down with Breeze for the final time because he had planned for that night to be their last. As soon as he turns his back, I'm going for it, Breeze thought as nervousness overwhelmed her and her hands began to tremble. Mati turned his back and walked over to the table where the nickel plate of 45 was placed. He was going to shoot Breeze in the head just before he took his own life. In his mind, it was a sure way for them to be together forever. Nevertheless, Breeze had another plan in mind. She was going to break away from a T or die trying. Breeze waited patiently for the right time to make her move and dart for the steps. As soon as Matee's back was totally turned, she took off running as fast as her petite legs would go. She hurriedly skipped two steps at a time, trying to climb to the top. Breeze! Mati yelled as he heard the commotion and saw her take off. He quickly took after her, remembering that he hadn't locked the door that led to the main floor. No! He yelled as he gave Chase up the stairs with the gun in his hand. 
Bree sprinted full speed and burst through the door. Her heart began to pound heavily as she was hit by the rays of the sunlight shining through the blinds. It had been so long since she had seen sunlight that it was like a punch to the face. Breeze quickly shook off the initial shock and darted out of her basement door, desperately searching for a door to escape the spacious home. Right, because he, she dreamed that Breeze broke out of his compound and ran out into the jungle that she had never seen before and got bit by a black widow in the jungles of Haiti and then got dragged back into the house. And then got dragged to the nurse's office that just, doctor's office, you know, they switch back and forth, that just happened to be in the town. She dreamed all of this without ever seeing it. And to quote um, OG Mako, bitch, you guessed it. She was right. God. Breeze quickly shook off the initial shock and darted out the basement door, desperately searching for a door to escape this spacious house. As she frantically ran through the house, Mati was right on her heels. Breeze knocked over lamps and chairs trying to evade his clutches and buy herself more time. Please, let me go, Breeze pleaded as she approached Mati's front door. But it was to no avail. He had two deadbolts. She tried to unlock the door quickly. But by that time, Mattia caught up with her and grabbed her from the back. Breeze kicked and screamed, but Mattia's strength was too much for her to match. He wrestled her to the floor, and that's when the tears began to pour from Breeze's eyes. She knew that she was about to die. At that very moment, she lost all hope. And her soul no longer belonged to her. It was Mattia's. Mati pointed the gun at Breeze's head and prepared to pull the trigger. Chu will forever be me lady, he said as he pressed the barrel to Breeze's temple. Breeze closed her eyes and tried to brace herself for the impact. God, please have mercy on my soul, she whispered just before the boom. It wasn't a boom from the gun, but from the sounds of items falling from Mati's walls and cabinets. The earth began to shake at a magnitude that would be documented in history as one of the worst earthquakes the world had ever seen. What the? Mati tried to stand, but the violent vibrations from the ground knocked him off his feet. Breeze didn't know what was going on as she looked around, frantically trying to figure out what was the cause of all the rumbling. The ground shook so intensely that Mati's windows shattered and his floor began to crack. The sounds of the trees crashing against the earth whistled through the air, and before long, Matisse's house began to crumble, as the earth seemed to swallow the house's foundation. Breeze screamed at the top of her lungs. She was in the middle of the pandemonium. Matisse tried to run under his kitchen table for protection, but he never made it. The roof caved in and crushed him, burying him in debris. Breeze witnessed Matisse's death just before the roof crushed her also. Breeze was instantly knocked unconscious as the earth crashed down on top of her. This natural disaster had made an imprint on Haiti's country that would be talked about for years to come. When the fuck did this book come out? Okay, let's see. This book came out in 2010. 
and the last earthquake in Haiti before the one that happened in 2021. God bless everybody and God rest the souls of the folks who have passed away. So far, there are 271 people and counting. Um, yeah. These motherfuckers took the tragedy of the Haiti earthquake and wrote it into their goddamn book. I don't even know how to really cope with that. Like that is that literally makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Like they read that and they were like, "That's it." Cheesy peasy. Carter walked through the cell block with a folded blanket and thin pillow in his hands. Two guards escorted him to a cell as the sounds of the rowdy inmates echoed through the corridor. Carter walked at his own pace with his head held high. The sound of someone yelling, The cartel is in the building! sounded off, and Carter smirked, knowing that some of his soldiers were on his cell block. The feds had come in and locked up most of his crew, and some of them were in the same penitentiary that Carter was currently at, which meant Carter was still in a position of power. Stop right here, the guard said as they approached the last cell on the block. Open D1, he yelled down the corridor. Moments later, the door slid open, exposing a heavy-set Latino man with a salt-and-pepper beard. He looked to be in his mid-to-late 50s. Garza, you have a new celly, the guard said, referring to him having a cellmate. You know the rules. My cell is not to be shared. Garza objected as he sat up from his bunk and placed the book down that he was reading. The prison is full and there's no other place he can go. He has to come in here, the guard said as if he was explaining to Garza rather than telling him. I don't want a nigger in my cell, Garza said as he gave Carter a dirty look. Carter nodded and gave Garza a small smirk just to piss him off more. It is what it is, Garza. He's your cellmate. Step in, the CO said as he stepped to the side, clearing the way for Carter. Carter stepped in and placed his things on the top bunk. Moments later, the guard yelled for the cell to be closed and the door slid shut, leaving Garza and Carter alone in the small room. Don't get comfortable. You won't be in here for too long, Garza said as he sat back on his bed and focused on his book. Carter hopped on his bunk and ignored Garza's comment not wanting to make any enemies so soon. He smirked and shook his head, knowing that Garza didn't realize whom he was talking to, or the power that Carter had. But the truth was, that Carter didn't realize the power and connections that Garza possessed. Robin walked into the crowded courthouse. Her expensive pencil skirt and matching crop jacket with a ruffle top gave her a professional appearance that allowed her to blend in with the lawyers and officials that filled the building. She smiled at the security guard at the entrance as she placed her briefcase on the conveyor belt and then stepped through a metal detector. With her Aramis briefcase in hand and a cardboard tray of Starbucks in the other, she seamlessly bypassed security. Her five-inch heels click-clacked across a wooden floor. Her steps so precise that one would think she was on a runway. She slipped into courtroom A. She peeked at the schedule and noticed that the next trial would not take place for another hour. It was more than enough time to handle her business and disappear. Just as she suspected, the stenographer was a light-skinned young woman with cute features. The presiding judge had a thing for young black girls. Robin walked inside and smiled humbly at the girl.
Hi, I'm Vanessa. I'm the new stenographer for Courtroom B. I'm supposed to be training underneath you today, Robin stated. The lie came off her lips so smoothly as she put down her things and extended her hand to the girl. Oh, no one told me I was supposed to be training today. Um, well, the girl seemed to be put on the spot and completely unprepared for the task at hand. I think they said they were replacing girls because of them being ill-prepared, Robin added slyly as she watched the girl's eyes grow wide in concern. Right, of course, I remember now. The training session today. I'm Melissa, she said as if she had suddenly remembered. Robin smiled and grabbed one of the cups of coffee. Well, Melissa, it's nice to meet you. I can't get through my day without my morning cup of coffee, Robin said as she extended the cup to the girl. Consider this as a student bringing the teacher an apple. It's my way of sucking up on the first day. Melissa accepted the coffee and nodded towards the chamber doors. You better go introduce yourself to Judge Morrell. That's who you should have purchased coffee for. He's the one to suck up to, Melissa stated playfully. Robin winked and replied, So I've heard. She then made her way to the large wooden door and knocked lightly. Come in, she heard the judge say, and she slid inside the plush, prestigious office. The middle-aged white man looked up at her from his desk. How can I help you? he asked. I'm Vanessa Riley from the district attorney's office. I'm here to drop off some motions from our office, Robin stated, making up another lie on the spot. She had been doing this for so long that it was nothing for her to switch personas. Lies were more familiar to her than the truth. Let's see them, Miss Riley, he said as he gave her his undivided attention. Robin set her briefcase on his desk and unhinged the gold clasps. Why haven't I seen you before? I thought I knew everyone from the DA's office, Judge Morrell said. As Robin pulled the papers from her briefcase, she replied, You do know everyone from the DA's office. She smiled and he looked at her curiously. Robin removed the paperwork from her briefcase and set it in front of the judge. As the judge looked over the papers, he stated, What is this? These aren't from the DA's office. He looked up at her in confusion. I have a message for you, she stated. She removed the ruler from her briefcase and leaned across the desk. Before he could even protest, she swiped the metal edge across his neck. The normal metal of the ruler had been replaced with a razor blade and cut through his neck effortlessly. Blood gushed from his wounds as he grasped at his bleeding throat. His eyes widened in fear as he silently pleaded for her to help him. Frankie Biggs sends his regards, Robin stated. The judge couldn't believe his ears. A man that he had sentenced to life in prison just weeks before had reached out from behind the wall and ordered his execution. For the right price, the murder mamas will hit anyone, including a state judge. As soon as the judge's head hit the wooden desk, Robin stood up and walked out of his chambers. She bypassed the young girl, Melissa, whose head was face first on the typewriter. The cyanide lace coffee had done his job to perfection. Without looking back, Robin exited the building unnoticed, with a satisfied smirk on her face. She waltzed down the stairs outside the front of the courtroom and slipped into the black bins that was waiting for her curbside. Aries pulled away discreetly 
and without any words, they got ghosts in the wind. Aries felt the engine purr beneath the hood of her Mercedes as she pushed the beautiful car along the California coastline. The wind whipped through Robin's hair as she pulled off the honey blonde wig that was her disguise. The mystery that lay behind their designer shades was more deadly than any onlooker could ever imagine. Business was good as usual. After the tyranny that had taken place in Miami, they had started anew in the City of Angels. There was more money to be made on the West Coast than they had ever encountered before. Leaving bodies in their path, their murder game had soared to new heights. Still, they couldn't help but feel like a fundamental piece of their puzzle was missing. What had started out as a band of five ladies with murder as an agenda had quickly become four. But then four had turned to three. And now, after all the bullshit, the last two were standing. Too many mistakes had caused their numbers to dwindle. And not knowing where Mia Moore was weighed heavily on both of their minds. The West Coast had been the plan all along. It had all been Mia Moore's idea. They would take Miami by storm and stack their paper until murder was released from prison. That had all been tossed aside when Carter Jones entered the picture. Mia Moore had forgotten her own rules and had gotten so caught up in her emotions she had broken their cardinal rule. Money over everything. Now murder was out of prison. Mia Moore was nowhere to be found, and it was up to them to fill him on everything that had gone down since the last time he had seen her. What are we going to tell him when he asks about her? Aries asked as they pulled up to the Union Station bus terminal. We're going to tell him the truth. Mia Moore chose a nigga over him and over us, Aries replied uncertainly, knowing the murder would not receive the news well. When they had contacted him to let him know their whereabouts, they never mentioned that Mia Moore had not relocated to L.A. They hoped to get him there first and inform him later, because they knew he could help them bring Mia Moore home and talk some sense into her. How'd they find him? Like, what? They never... When did they talk to him? I hope they clear that up. Aries pulled into the parking lot of the station to put the car in park as both she and Robin peered anxiously towards the door. Didn't his bus get here like an hour ago? Robin asked. He's here. He's watching us. Murder don't move until he's ready to. That's where Mia Moore got it from. Aries replied confidently as she recalled the many stories that Mia Moore has shared with her about the man. Finally, murder came sauntering out of the station, his pants low, fitted hat worn over his eyes, while his head sat on a swivel neck as he surveyed his surroundings. Even though no pistol dwelled on his hip, his hand was instinctively planted there. Robin smirked as she popped the locks for murder to enter the car. You're all the way in Cali. Who you looking for? Her tongue was playful. But his was not when he replied, I pop niggas in Cali. With that, he ducked low in his seat and pulled down his hat as Aries put the car in drive. Where's Mia Moore? He asked immediately. She was whom he had made the trip to see. After years of lockup, their reunion was inevitable. We have something to tell you. Robin turned around so that she was facing murder. In the letter we sent you, we didn't tell you everything. So they sent him a letter, just like she dreamed it. Just like I drew it. Where's Mia Moore? Murder asked again, almost impatiently. 
Aries was silent as she drove. She didn't want to be the bearer of bad news. The hairs on the back of her neck stood up as Robin spoke up. She's not here. She decided to stay in Miami. She's fucking with the same niggas that murdered Anissa, Robin stated. Murder's temperature went through the roof as his jaw tightened and his brown eyes turned black. My little mama wouldn't do that, Murder replied assuredly as he stretched out across the back seat of the car. It's not exactly how Robin's making it sound, Aries cut in. When we went to Miami, we accepted a contract to hit a group called the Cartel. Anissa was murdered, and after that, everything spun out of control. Me and Moore met this nigga named Carter. She fell in love with him, but didn't know that he was affiliated with the cartel. Affiliated how? Murder asked. His words were calm, but the blaze behind his stare revealed his true emotions. He's a brother of the nigga that killed Anissa, Robin finished. When we left, she stayed behind. She's not the same, Murder. That nigga Carter got her all fucked up in the head, and we need your help to get her back. Murder was livid as he processed everything the murder mamas had told him. He had been gone too long. He was out of touch with the streets, and even worse, out of touch with Mia Moore. Although he had never expected her to wait for him, hearing that she was so loyal to another man sparked a flame inside of him that he tried to snuff out long ago. He was ready to go retrieve Mia Moore, and anyone that stood between them could get it. They rode in silence until they reached a condo that Robin and Airy shared. As they walked up their walkway, they immediately noticed that things were not as they left them. The curtains in the living room window had been shifted slightly, and the piece of clear tape that they had put on the top of their front door had been ripped in half, indicating that someone had come in or out of the condo. Aries put her finger to her lips and pulled out her 9mm pistol as she stepped into the condo first. Their place was untouched. Nothing was out of place. But they knew that someone had crossed their threshold. They filtered through the place, going in separate directions, until every room had been checked. There's nobody here, Murder stated. But somebody's been here, Robin stated as she finally noticed a medium-sized packing box that sat in the middle of their kitchen island. She picked it up, and Aries gasped as she noticed the bloodstained bottom. Robin, she said as she pointed at the red color. Murder walked over to her and removed the box from her hands. He opened the box, and when he noticed what was inside, his stomach folded, causing him to bend over as if someone had punched him in the gut. What is it? Aries asked in a panic as she watched Murder's reaction. Tears filled Robin's eyes as she shook her head back and forth in disbelief. She ran to the kitchen sink as the contents of her stomach erupted from her mouth. What the fuck is it? Aries asked again as she stormed over to the box. Murder stopped her in her tracks as he wrapped one hand around her throat. Why did you leave her there? he asked. You should have never left her in Miami, he stated, his eyes ablaze with anger. The mixture of devastation and rage that twisted his features told Ares all that she needed to know. She violently slapped his hand away from her neck and rushed over to the box. Her heart felt as if it shattered into tiny pieces when she saw the severed hand that lay inside. The cursive murder mama on the wrist revealed her identity. It was Mia Moore. They knew that only one person could be this ruthless.
She's dead, Ares whispered in disbelief. Robin stood from the sink and walked over to Ares as they wrapped their arms around each other. We shouldn't have left her, Ares whispered regretfully. There was an address written on the inside of Miamor's hand. It was a sign of respect that only someone in their profession would understand. It was Mecca's way of letting them know where they could find her body. So you dream all this shit up. You have this whole sequence. This whole thing happens. Without turning around, Murder stated, I want to know everything you know about the cartel. No more words needed to be spoken. They all knew what had to be done. It was time to go back to Miami. So, you go through this whole dream sequence where you brutally assault Breeze over and over again. And you brutally, you, you have uh, Mia Moore fight her way out of being brutally murdered to make it into a, a make it back to Carter, be nursed back to health to Carter for like three-fourths of the book to finally wake up and tell Carter about uh, Mecca and get thrown out by Carter. So then in the first chapter of the next book, you can have Mia Moore get her hand chopped off and likely probably not murdered because that's how this book works, but get her hand chopped off and have Breeze get killed by the hate by the earthquake in Haiti. That's what your choices are. That's that's what you decide to do with the very first chapter of your book. It's kill the women again. Put the women in danger again. And I still don't understand two things. One, how they got the letter to murder. And two, how Mecca knew their address. Enlighten me. Mia Moore didn't know where they went to. She just knew that they packed up and left. So how did he know their address? Somebody help me out with that real quick. This book is already starting off on the wrong book and or on the wrong page, and it's only chapter one. And I don't like it. Nine one six six three three one five three seven. Ratchet and Ratchet at Gmail dot com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Um leave a review uh, at podchaser.com you can leave a review for the episode and for the show as a whole you can also re- leave a review on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher uh, become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash single simulcast uh, buymeacoffee.com slash sscast um, you can if you're on good pods you can leave a tip at goodpods.com or on the app Mostly, it's on the app. Thank y'all so much for walking with me back into this quagmire. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking your time out to listen. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace.
intro and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by that kid Garan, and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know by now that you're